Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for 20-plus years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. In fact, most of our listenership knows Sharon or knows who she is. Our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs. And today, we're going to be talking about Miss Helen Lamb. Oh, this is... Do you remember anything about Helen Lamb? I learned a little bit about her in school. You know, I had the best teachers in the whole world. Well, they just happened to be in the room with us right Uh, now, right? There you go. But it's just really... This historical series, Jeremy, is just incredible. The things that I'm learning, and as Sandy says, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Or what's the other one? We are all drinking from whales. We drink from whales we did not dig. That's it. And I'm learning about the whales. (laughs) Well, and with us again today for this historical series are Nancy Marie and Sandy Ouellette, who are a wealth of knowledge. And I feel like every time I'm around them, I am drinking from a very deep well because uh, they didn't teach me about Helen Lamb in business school. But I've learned a lot about nurse anesthesia throughout this process. Well, maybe you need to ask your wife. I bet Uh, she knows. About she does Helen know about Lamb. Helen Lamb. Y'all can talk yeah. about that tonight over dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you refer to Helen Lamb as the mother of nurse anesthesia education. Nancy, tell us a little bit about Helen Lamb, where she was born, kind of her background. Well, Helen Lamb was a small town girl like me. She was. Did born- you know each other? I did meet her. Oh, really? You did meet her. Oh, wow. yeah, okay. I did. I did meet oh. her at an ANA meeting, as Sandy did. She was retired at the time, but I did meet her. Wow. Hmm, that's pretty cool. That's like me meeting her. Well, right, I mean, she God. didn't die until 1979. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, she was only like 80. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. She was born in Butler, Missouri. On September 28, 1899, and her father was Charles Leonard Lamb, and her mother was Emma Culbertson. And Butler is a really small town south of Kansas City, and so that's pretty much where she grew up. She received her nursing education at Christian Church Hospital School of Nursing in Kansas City, Missouri, and she received her RN license in 1921. So from here, from nursing school, she moved to Cleveland, which is where she became a nurse anesthetist, and I'm going to let Sandy talk to you about how she did that. 
Yeah, she went to the Lakeside Hospital School of Anesthesia, and we've talked about that previously because that was the true Mecca mm -hmm. at that time. And that's why we had our 75th anniversary of the ANA back in Cleveland, Ohio, because that's oh. where it all started. Oh, wait. At, that's um, when you at won an award, right, Nancy? Mm -hmm. The Lakeside School of Anesthesia. Yeah. Now, that was a six-month program mm -hmm. at the time. But the interesting thing was Helen Lamb was a student of our ANA founder, Agatha Hodgins. Mm -hmm. And so Agatha taught Helen what she knew about anesthesia. And when she finished her six-month program, Helen Lamb became a staff anesthetist at Lakeside until 1927. So she stayed on and she taught others and she administered anesthesia. However, in 1929, she was recruited by the infamous, famous surgeon, Dr. Graham. He was chief of surgery at Barnes in St. Louis, and he recruited Helen Lamb to become his private anesthetist. So when she moved to Barnes in St. Louis, she administered and managed all of Dr. Graham's patients for over 20 years. It is so very important that Dr. Graham had a special interest in thoracic surgery, and Helen Lamb administered anesthesia for the first successful pneumonectomy for Dr. Graham in 1933. Now think back at that time. Didn't know too much about thoracic anesthesia. Didn't know too much about positive pressure ventilation. And if you didn't use that, you would get mediastinal shift mm -hmm. and paradoxical respiration. So she was really, really blazing the trail in an unknown area at that time. And she was probably learning every day. She was the first anesthetist in the U.S. to use endotracheal anesthesia. And again, it was probably due to the fact that for those thoracic procedures, she had to have positive pressure ventilation. She also collaborated with Dr. Richard Forger on the design of an anesthesia gas machine for Barnes Hospital. And what she was looking for was one that would be specifically designed that would help with Dr. Graham's surgeries. And so much of that was thoracic anesthesia. So in 1929, Barnes opened a school of anesthesia, and Helen Lamb, of course, was the director. Interesting enough, she held that position until her retirement in 1952. So she was there a, a long time. And uh, the program she created expanded from four months in 1929 to a two-year program in 1963. Now, at that time, when I entered anesthesia in uh, 1967, the length of the program had to be 18 months. But the one at Wake Forest, where we all three graduated, was even two years at that time. But few of them were. So she was well ahead of her time mm -hmm. in terms of the time necessary to really produce uh, competent anesthetists. Her graduates were in very high demand nationally, and it was due to this rigorous training and high standards established by Helen Lamb, and she had learned them without a doubt from her mentor and teacher, Agatha Hodgins. So, in addition to being Graham's personal anesthetist and teaching, she served as chief nurse anesthetist at Barnes from 1929 to 1952. And even though Dr. Graham supported Helen Lamb, he was an advocate 
for an anesthesiology residency program to oversee nurse anesthesia training. He supported this due to advances he felt in both anesthesia and surgical procedures. And so about the time they brought in physician anesthetists to take some of the primary administrative roles was about the time Helen Lamb retired. So wait just a second. Whenever they pioneer a procedure, number one, they know little about. Number two, probably have very little equipment. She's good enough to do that. But whenever they get more technology and it's an easier procedure and people know about it, then she needs supervision. That's right. That's right. That's about the way it was working out because in 1950, Washington University School of Medicine hired an anesthesiologist to head the educational program and take over as head of anesthesia at Barnes Hospital. And Helen Lamb retired the following year. Very interesting, Sharon. You bring up a good point. When I was a student at Wake Forest, it was called, I guess, North Carolina Baptist Hospital, Bowman Gray School of Medicine at the time, you know, Helen Voss was my mentor, Mm -hmm. dearest friend, and I attribute everything that I've been able to achieve directly to her. But it was interesting that when they hired the first anesthesiologist when I was a student, Dr. Tom Irving, it wasn't long after that before Helen went on vacation, and when she came back, she found out that she was no longer the director of the nurse anesthesia program. Because again, just like at the time for Helen Lamb, it was felt that it would be a much more prestigious program if it was a physician anesthesiologist that was director of the nurse anesthesia program and not a nurse anesthetist. So Helen thought about it for a nanosecond and she said, well, I think I understand. I can have all the files boxed and ready to be transported to your office by 4 o'clock this afternoon. So where do you want me to deliver all the files? And Dr. Irving said, oh, you don't understand. You'll be doing the same thing that you've done, but it'll just be different titles. She said, no, you don't understand. With the title goes the files and all the students. And guess what? That was the end of that discussion. That was actually and, quite <laughs> brilliant. And, and Helen remained the director of the nurse oh, anesthesia program until her retirement. Too bad Helen Lamb didn't think about something like that, wouldn't you say? Oh, my Yeah, goodness. very interesting. So um, in terms of her service to ANA, and then I'm going to turn it over to Nancy because she's really the big one on accreditation, and that was her mark, I think, for our profession. But advances in anesthesia and surgical techniques led surgeons and hospital administrators to call for anesthesia training standards. And so it wasn't only Dr. Graham who wanted a physician because things were moving along, but also the hospital administrators were wanting higher educational standards. And so Helen Lamb was a founding member of the Missouri Association of Nurse Anesthetists in 1935, and she served as its first president. She was also a founding charter member of NANA, which was the National Association of Nurse Anesthetists in 1931. It changed its name, I think, a few years later to the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. And Agatha Hodgins was elected president of NANA and Helen Lamb third vice president in 1931 at the inception of the National Association of Nurse Anesthetists. And Helen served as trustee in 1933 through 1938 and again in 1942 to 1946. 
and she was the fifth president of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. It had changed its name by then uh, from 1940 to 1942. So she was there at the foundation, and probably it was her vision that led to certification and accreditation and those standards that hospital administrators were demanding at the time. And so, Nancy, uh, you were big as chair of the Council on Accreditation, so what did you find out her contributions were? Well, Helen Lamb, from the beginning of an organized association of nurse anesthetists, her major goal was education. It always was. And that, in her mind, should and was, during her era, the number one goal for AANA was education of nurse anesthetists. It was more important at that time than the actual clinical practice side of people who had graduated. And her major concern was that, and this became later, a little bit later, she was AA and Education Committee numerous times. She began in 1933 and then to 1940 and then there was a little hiatus and then back again in 1942 to 1946. One of the things that really spurred her on about her mission of ensuring well-qualified nurse anesthetist graduates from nurse anesthesia school had to do with World War II because during World War II there was a tremendous increase in the number of nurse anesthesia programs because there was a tremendous manpower shortage for anesthesia during World War II. At the European theater, as well as, in as, the well as here. Yes. And she was very concerned that the schools popping up in every little hospital, you know, what were they really being taught? And they had various lengths of the programs and that sort of thing. So in 1945, she was able, as chair of the Education Committee, to get essentials of an acceptable school of anesthesiology for graduate registered nurses approved by the committee as well as the AANA. So that was her first real win mm -hmm. for organizing nurse anesthesia education. And then the next thing she did following that, but in the same year, still in 1945, she and the education committee put together a standard curriculum. And this was approved by the board again in 1945 and it became part of the essentials of the acceptable school that we just talked about. And in that, they identified specific content, minimal numbers of class hours, acceptable numbers of cases. And of course, it wasn't like it is now, or when, even when Sandy and I went to school, but the established length of the program at that time, the very beginning, was six months, but really the goal was one year. That's what they really right. advocated. For classroom instruction had to be 95 hours, OR instruction 18 hours, and a minimum number of cases was 325. Now 25 of those were OB, had to be OB, 25 dental, and 25 could be spinal or locals. Interesting Nancy that you say that. So a one-year program 
they had to administer anesthesia for 325 cases. After all these years, I think the minimum number is, what, 550? I think it's a little higher. Than a little that. higher than that, but, but not much. Mm-hmm. And our programs are two and going to three years with wow. doctoral mandate as entry by 2025. Yeah, but we always had a lot more cases oh, yeah. than that. You wouldn't have let me step foot <laughs> out of that. You're correct. <laughs> you're, you're correct with it's that. about like whenever we first went in, first day of class, never will I forget it. We thought we were getting our books. And Sandy lectured for eight hours <laughs> that first day. Jerry Hogan, who was president of Florida, who's now the head of the Rush program, he sat beside of me, and we just – we couldn't believe that this was was happening to us. You know, uh, thinking of that, Sharon, I heard from a, a previous student. It was at the meeting last year when we mm-hmm. were at Cherokee. Went out to dinner with some of the former students, and you know, you hear all these stories you never knew they were talking about. You know, when you were their director, they were students. He said, "I remember the first day of class with you. It was on the anatomy and physiology of the nervous system." He said, "You went nonstop for eight hours," True. and I. I walked out with my classmate and said, what in the hell is a ganglia? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that was also the day that you could, what, I'll never forget it. You said, you looked around that class, there were only 10 of us, and she said, you will make A's here because nobody that makes a B is putting me to sleep, and you're not getting out of this program if you don't make an A. Jerry Hogan leaned over. He goes, oh, my, we're in trouble. (laughs) Well, my first day of anesthesia school started on a Wednesday morning at Wednesday morning conference. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Which, you know, started at 7 in the morning. And from there, I went to class till three o'clock in the afternoon. Then I was on call until the next morning. Hmm. They had to go back to class. This was bro. my first day. <laughs> oh, wow. And then I had to go back to class. I knew that was coming. And, and then I had in to the do, snow, right? It was no, snowing. This is, this is the truth, I swear to you. This is the truth. <laughs> then I had to go do my pre-ops, and then I got to go home. Did you ever wow. get to eat? You were playing cards, right? I was playing cards. <laughs> Most of the time, Betty and I uh, drank a Coke and ate some nails. That's usually what we ate. The wow. good but, old days. Well, let's talk about Helen again. <laughs> so anyway, but the other thing that, oh, by the way, I got reported to Helen Voss by the OR because I got to do a case that first day, too. Wow. Oh. That's pretty impressive. Mm. So anyway, the other thing that Helen did was after this, she was doing this in steps. I Mm -hmm. hope you can see that. The next thing was that she planned for visitation of the schools. Now, this wasn't called accreditation at that point in time. It was just that there would be approved people, and these people would be approved by the AANA. And when they say that, I don't know whether she meant by the AANA board or the education committee, but by the AANA in some form. But the reason, her reasoning was that it would benefit the school to be visited by experts in anesthesia. So that was sort of the beginning of the on-site review Mm -hmm. business. And Lord, we remember all those on-site accreditation visits. It went from Helen Lamb all the way through our time. And someone told me one time, you know, the two biggest lies ever spoken are during an accreditation visit. And I said, well, what are they? When the visitors come, they look at you and say, we're here to help you. (laughs) And when they leave, 
you tell them we're so glad you came. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like the government. Isn't yeah. that's right. <laughs> we're here to help you. <laughs> so her greatest contributions in the early years of the AANA were her efforts to set educational standards that would apply to all nurse anesthesia programs so that there was a consistent curriculum, consistent clinical training for all students, all schools in the United States. But the one thing that she doesn't get a lot of credit for, and I don't think a lot of people really know, is that she was very instrumental in forming state associations. She founded or she was a founding member of the Missouri Association of Nurse Anesthetists, and that was in 1935. And so after that, and she served as its first president. Mm -hmm. And so she was very interested in forming state associations, and then later she was very instrumental in the encouragement of state associations to become part of the AANA. So she- Well, that was very visionary. She also was a very good friend of Agatha Hodgins, and there were lots of communications between Helen Lamb and Agatha Hodgins in the early years of NANA and AANA as it ultimately became named. She felt that, as far as education was concerned, that state registration should be a primary objective. In other words, we should, not necessarily we shouldn't be licensed, but somehow we needed to be recognized in the states in which we lived and where we gave anesthesia. You mean as, as an anesthetist? Yes, yes. Well, she was really ahead of her time because we didn't even get recognized until, what, 1990 in, yep. in North Carolina, somewhere mm-hmm. along in there? Mm-hmm. And as I said, she was very much a part of getting state associations to be a part of the ANA. Well, that was good, too, and I think that's probably what contributed to our strength because I just found out, you know, state associations with the American Nurses Association doesn't necessarily have to be involved with the with the American Nurses Association, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so it's really weakened them, I think. <laughs> but she had a real sharp vision for the future, and probably more so than anybody else of her time, particularly when it came to the foundation of the AANA as well as the education of nurse anesthetists. She was, like we talked, she was very for uniform standards, a program accreditation, and then after that, she started talking about national certification. So the whole ball of wax that we have today although, you know, in a much more sophisticated manner, was Helen Lamb's dream. That's what it was. And the formal accreditation process was approved at the 17th annual meeting in 1950. So she lived to see that happen. And so that was the beginning of our Council on Accreditation of Nurse Anesthesia Educational Programs. It wasn't called that Mm -hmm. at that time, but that's what it was. And you know, the push for national examination was even before accreditation, because the first, they used to call it a qualifying examination, Mm -hmm. was given in 1945, and accreditation, as Nancy said, came later in 1952, recognized by the U.S. Office of Education in 1955. And as I read through the history, there was a real 
argument about whether one should be certified and accredited by the state versus national. And thank goodness we got a national accreditation oh and a national certification. Can you imagine if we had to go through a certification in every state like we do our RN license and we have to transport it from state to state? Oh it would have been an absolute nightmare. Or even like lawyers. Yeah, I mean, a nightmare right. in today's time, yes. Well, I kind of want to end by saying two things. Helen Lamb was so involved in organizing educational standards, accreditation, certification, that and certification by an exam, that she worked with other organizations to help them do the same thing that was happening within the AANA. And oddly enough, that was the American Board of Anesthesiology and the American Board of Surgeons. Really? Yes. And she felt very strongly that our association should be the accrediting agency rather than any other organization like the NLN or any other type of organization. And that was the case from 1952 through 1974 when the councils were formed. And of course it really was the association that was doing the accrediting until we ran into the challenge with the anesthesiologist around that time and our councils had to be semi-autonomous and what that means is the association could not have any input into the accrediting decision. They okay. could not have okay. undue influence, right. I right. think is the well, real word. Well, let's go back and expound on that just a little bit more. So it came from outside of the organization. Why don't I know both of y'all were kind of real active during this time. It was the Department of Education? Mm -hmm. U.S. Office of Education yes. had had a challenge to ANA being all things to all people. We could not be the membership organization and the certifying organization and the accrediting organization. And this was uh, brought, of course, by some anesthesiology physicians. And I remember those hearings in Washington, D.C., and uh, Celestine Harrigan from Wayne State was a CRNA that did a yeoman's job in representing uh, nurse anesthetists and the ANA at those hearings. And um, Aragon was the one that developed the blueprint uh, that would be then the semi-autonomous councils of certification, accreditation, and the council on practice, which later changed to the Council on Public Interest, because there are people on these councils that are not nurse anesthetists, and we believe that it should be nurse anesthetists that define practice and not any other group, and so it changed to the Council on Public Interest. And then, of course, in 1978, when the members voted for mandatory continuing education, and it's very important to know, they voted for it, and that's why they accepted it so well, unlike what well, we're seeing today. Yeah, well, I heard they were throwing chairs in there. Yeah, I don't remember any of that, but they did They did accept it, and, and that's when the Council on uh, Recertification was formed. So all of these, and I think it's very important what Nancy just said for us to recall. 
This semi-autonomous or autonomy does not mean complete separation from your parent organization. It means not having undue influence in terms of bylaws, in terms of budget, but it's been taken to the far extreme by people that want it to be different than it is today. But that's exactly what it meant, and we live very well under that particular format until about 2011, I must say. Nancy, can you add anything? Well, the other thing that I just wanted to add was that in 1976, I don't know why it took so long, Helen Lamb received the AANA Agatha Hodgins Award for Outstanding Accomplishment. And later, after her death, and actually it was her money, or her, I guess, money that made this happen, In 1979, the AANA established the Helen Lamb Outstanding Educator Award in recognition of her contributions to the establishment of curriculum and minimal minimal standards for schools of nurse anesthesia. So whenever you say her money, she donated money? Well, she she, she she donated the... She... I'm not really sure how much money, but I know that she established it, or it was established after her death. Okay. And her husband, at the time of her death, I know presented the first one, and that was to... I'd have to look it up, but she specified who the first one was. Oh, I know to. who it was. Joyce it Kelly. It was Joyce Kelly, yeah. Yeah, and the so. second award had to go to John Gard, and after that, it would be the choice it would be by the process that we have today. The other thing is, Nancy, you said you didn't know why it took so long for her to get the Agatha Hodgins Award, but she did receive it in 1976, and I believe that was first awarded in 1974 with Ruth Satterfield receiving the well, first. Really, yeah. So she did get it pretty soon after that award. And, and both of these are the highest awards given by the ANA, with Agatha Hodgins felt by many to be the number one highest award, and the Helen Lamb Award for Outstanding Education being second to that. Wow. And both of y'all have won the Helen mm-hmm. Lamb. Mm-hmm. And, and you Ag- won it the year we were in Cleveland. Cleveland, yes. And both uh, the uh, Agatha Hodgins and Helen Lamb. So, Sandy, it sounds like she was all work and no play. Did she do anything outside of oh, the anesthesia yes, world? Oh, yes, yes. I really like this part. <laughs> you know. Oh, this uh, might get juicy. So, yeah. So, um, you know, she was a very dedicated professional. So she didn't have, it would seem, any time for anything else. But yet, in fact, she did. She married Walter Powell in um, 1951 in St. Louis. And Helen Lamb was 52 years old then. When she got married? So she, yes. I'm glad I'm an anesthetist yes. So Alice McGall, you know, was 48. Yeah. And she was, fit. they were so busy, you know. That yeah. had to be sort of well, secondary. Well, I think the theme that we're seeing is they gave back. I mean, <laughs> yes. they, they gave back Absolutely. to this association, yeah. which is what all three of you in this room. Well, the so. interesting thing was Walter Powell was a very wealthy man in St. Louis. He was also president of the St. Louis Ice Skating Club and president of the U.S. Figure Skating Association between 1943 and 1946. And he was a judge for international skating competitions. He was on his way to the 1961 World Figure Skating Championship when he was killed in that crash 
of a flight that killed the entire mm. team. Oh, yeah. Now, Helen Lamb was supposed to have been with him, and she had to stay because of professional issues that were going on. She was going to meet him a couple of days later for this uh, international competition. And, of course, he died. And I think she was only married to him in 1951, although they had been friends for many, many years. So about 10 years she was married to Walter Powell. Can I say uh one thing? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the reasons they didn't get married was because Walter Powell's wife was in was upset about that no (laughs) no she was in a mental institution Uh, for reasons uh, nobody knows mm -hmm. what the diagnosis was and so he did not marry anyone until after her death Mm -hmm. Uh, that's correct because he was not going to right divorce divorce her while she was in a mental kind of situation so anyway when they got married as nancy said they'd known each other for decades and um Powell celebrated their ninth wedding anniversary in their luxury top-floor apartment overlooking Forest Park in downtown St. Louis. And it was said that they were really socialites. They uh, entertained often and were well-known in the St. Louis uh, social circles. They were also patrons of the St. Louis Symphony, and Helen had a real passion for this. But also, they attended weekly club sessions at Winter Gardens and the ice skating and so on. She was much more reserved and did not interact as much as he did uh, with the skating dance, but said they squabbled a lot when the two of them were out there skating. I can't imagine Helen Lamb that I knew and I met many years later than that uh, ice skating. I mean, I you know, I just couldn't picture that, but apparently she was real, real good. And so when he died, the U.S. Um, Figure Skating Association believed that she would take some of that wealth and rebuild the U.S. Figure Skating International team. But that was not to be. So what Helen did is um, uh, she gave $1 million grant to the St. Louis Symphony, and along with a Ford Challenge grant, they redid Symphony Hall in St. Louis they refurbished the theater and it opened in 1968 as the Powell Symphony Hall. A skater said when they show up in heaven, there was going to be a bit of a squabble because they believed that he would have wanted that million dollars to go to the skating team. But, you know, she had her hands on the money and she then did the symphony in St. Louis. So I have good friends that knew Helen after the death of Walter, and she obviously was just devastated, devastated. I don't know how long they had been friends before they got married, but they were only married roughly a decade. And she would show up at the ANA meetings and the past president's dinner, all dressed in black and inconsolable and teary. And then all of a sudden, she showed up happy again. So in 1967, she married Noel Coleman, who was multimillionaire number two. Well, there you so go. So Walter Powell was, uh, was uh, the first, and then she married him. And, of course, she outlived him as well. Oh, my gosh, I'm liking and, this. And uh, <laughs> so her final husband and uh, third husband was Jack Frost, and um, they were married in 1973 in California. Jack was about 25 years younger than Helen, and it was interesting that Dick and I attended in Greensboro several years ago the National 
ice skating competitions, mm-hmm. and they had the yep. whole thing there for a week, and we went to all of it. And while I was there, they were honoring the 1961 World figure skating team that had all perished in that crash. And they had a book entitled Indelible Tracings, the story of the 1961 U.S. World figure skating team. And I thought, I'm going to pick that up because I'll bet they have something in there about Walter Powell. Mm -hmm. And so I bought the book, and not only did they have things in there about Walter Powell, but they had quite a few paragraphs about Helen Lamb Powell Mm -hmm. and all about how they wanted the team rebuilt and she spent the money for the symphony and on and on it went. She's not in good good gracious. And in this book, in this book, I couldn't believe it. But it said, and I quote, we all knew why he married her. That would have been um, Jack Frost. But he was very kind to her. So we didn't care because he made her happy. Helen gradually lost touch with skating friends as the new couple moved back Sun Valley, Squaw Valley, Lake Tahoe, Boston, and Hawaii. Some thought they divorced and some understood they never married, suggesting it was an arrangement of convenience. She was used to being looked after and he enjoyed their affluent lifestyle. All agreed though, Helen was devastated when Walter died find someone to look after her, and was very happy in her later years. And that was a quote taken exactly uh, from this book, which I find quite interesting. So in addition to a stellar career, you know, she had three marriages, two were to multimillionaires, and then... Um, and one then, to a young man. You know, to, one to a younger man, and you know, she was, of course, in retirement and much older at that time. She got married the first time when she was 52. Right. Uh, you know, so um, at any rate... She was uh, she was an amazing woman and had an amazing social life, I would say. I would it, think so. And uh, the mother of nurse anesthesia yeah. education. There you go. There you go. Well, Sandy, Nancy, it's uh, been wonderful to hear more about Helen Lamb. and But I, Sharon, I think that's a wrap. I think it is. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and... Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Until next time. It's a wrap. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. 
Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support.